Our guest today spent 27 years with Portland Fire and Rescue as a frontline firefighter and EMT, and later in the public education unit. Upon retirement, he turned a 1912 firehouse into a safety learning center and museum and began accumulating stories and artifacts to further document the history from today all the way back to 1853. If you are interested in firefighting, you're going to love this one. And you know what? If you don't know anything about firefighting, you're going to love it too. Here is my friend, Don Porth. We were talking a second ago about, uh, you were discussing the 1800s and the, the fire department. Um, you Were you in the fire department? Were you a firefighter? Not in the 1800s, but... Uh... <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yeah. By by trade, I'm a firefighter. I, I first got into firefighting in 1980, uh, so 42 years ago, which, you know, it's kind of, that really begs the question, where does history begin? Yeah. When does something become historic? That's a, that's a whole different thing. But I began as a volunteer firefighter in Happy Valley, actually a student firefighter, which you're taking um, educational courses in the fire sciences, and they'd had a sleeper program where you'd work, I'd work a regular job during the day, and then every third day I'd work a nighttime shift work. Okay. And learn some of the, you know, the ins and outs and and they would they would help uh, train and then I did that for a year and then uh, because I was taking fire science classes my time was pretty full so I converted to just being a volunteer for a couple of more years after that. So when did you become full time? Uh, so during all that time, I was taking competitive testing. In order to get into the fire service, most departments have a, a testing process. So you take a written examination, you take a physical agility test, and then uh, if you continue to progress through those, it, it comes down to an interview um, segment where you meet with a panel and they interview you to see, you know, whatever they want to know. Yeah, I had heard before that it's a pretty difficult process. They don't just pick anybody, right? What, what, what criteria do you have to meet physically and mentally to get in? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting because the, the first part is the written test. And you can, you know, you kind of know what you know. And you know more with the, with the uh, fire science background in education. Uh, there's been a push to make it more generic so it doesn't favor people that, that have education in that, which is rather counterintuitive. But it would naturally kind of thin the herd a little bit. Um, you know, some schools of thought were there's a lot of nepotism in the fire service, and there is a lot of family. But when you grow up around the industry, you kind of pick up on things, and so naturally you test a little better. You also have connections that that help you. So there was a time period where where um, that background knowledge or experience would would help you in the written examination process, but in an effort to level the playing field, some some departments or communities would say, we want to take that out of it. And we're just looking for, I guess, a certain level of academic capacity. In other it, words, can you read and write and that kind of thing? Wouldn't you have a lot more people applying for it if you lowered the the, the educational requirement? Well, and that's a whole other thing as well. There is no, ed well, in some cases, there is no educational requirement. It's okay. come one, come all. And again, this has changed and evolved over the years. But, uh, um, you know, you do want a lot of people, but when I tested, there were several thousand people that tested for what ended up being probably 30 positions. Wow. So there's a point where you can spend a lot of money opening the field up to a lot of people, but you're spending a lot of money to, to eliminate 90% of the people that, that come knocking on the door. 
And what were the physical requirements? Uh, they varied from department to department, but basically it was strength, um, um, stamina, you know, those kind of things. So most departments had real world activities, raising a ladder up against a, a wall, you know, standing it up from laying flat uh, to an upright position or raising uh, the ladder by pulling the rope, the two-section or three-section ladder to extend it. That takes a lot of strength, carrying a certain amount of weight. Uh, so, for example, in Portland, uh, there was uh, the physical agility test, and we had to qualify in this every year. Uh, there were a bucket shuttle, two, two five-gallon buckets full of water, so they weighed somewhere in 40 to 45 pounds each. You'd have to shuttle down 50 feet, back 50 feet, down 50 feet, back 50 feet. There was a simulated body drag. There was a uh, a lift of a ladder uh, laying on its side that you had to pick up and simulate hanging it on the side of a fire engine and back down. There was one where you have to, the ladder's laying flat on the ground and you have to walk it up rung by rung and stand it up flat against the wall, let it down, stand it up, let it down. And then the, the coup de gras was always the uh, stair climb. So with a uh, firefighter turnout coat, the, the heavy firefighting coat on with a breathing apparatus, the air tank, um, and a bundle of hose over your shoulder, you would have to go up three, four flights of stairs up to the top and back carrying that load. And so out of, you said there were 7,000 people? Uh, no, several, a few thousand a few in thousand. Portland. Yeah, I don't remember what the number was, but- So how it, many of those people didn't pass the physical part? Well, so you have to pass the the uh, the written test to move on to the physical. Gotcha. So it's a reduced number, and I don't know what the percentages are, but typically, gosh, you know, they'd probably take, I don't know, a few hundred onto the physical agility, and out of that, um, I don't know, I'm sure half passed or so. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, it wasn't just pass fail; there was a scoring component to it. Uh, when I took Portland's test. There were a couple of events. The faster your time, the more points you scored, mm -hmm. which elevated you. And then there's points for um, people that are veterans would get preference points. Uh, there were some some departments that were a little more progressive thinkers that would give credit for uh, or extra points for having a fire science degree. Uh, and so, you know, you'd maneuver through that process. And then, and then they might take, let's say they had five positions, they might take 30 people and interview them and then rank them and then create a list that they would just begin hiring. Gotcha. And you said you had to do this annually. Well, the physical agility test you have to do annually in order to um, show your your level of fitness. Most okay. departments have a requirement like that. Well, yeah, and so do. by the time you're hitting like your 40s, 50s, 60s, <laughs> the 20-year-old whippersnappers are going to be crushing it compared to you, right? It's, sure. It's pretty difficult. Yeah, but there was a, um, I wouldn't say a generous amount of time to complete it. Uh, so Portland's test, I want to say, I, I want to say the time limit was like it was eight consecutive events, and it was nine minutes and thirty seconds or something like that. So there were guys that were real animals that could do it in like two and a half minutes. Yeah, uh, my best ever was three minutes fifty nine seconds. I think I was thirty nine, you know, and I thought. <laughs> Man, I'm I'm getting up in age. That's the last time I want to do that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you can hurt yourself doing it. Oh yeah. But I had up to nine minutes to do it. So, mm -hmm. and I think they arrived at that number by some average of every uh, entry applicant going through the process. They took all of the times and aggregated them and came up with an average. And they said, okay, that's what everybody on the job needs to be able to do. Um, something like that. There was there was there was reason behind it, and they were very job related. Um, 
um, activities, each each of the eight, and you had to do them consecutively all within a window of time. So there was a real cardio element to it. I mean, it was hard. It was it would it would beat you up. Yeah, you could kind of cruise through and and really get just sneak under the window of time. But if you you know if you really went after it in a reasonable manner, the way you would you would take these on in a, in a real world. Uh, firefighting operation, you know, the kind of speed and, and uh, way you'd go about it. Uh, it. It was, it was hard work. Hmm. Okay. So we'll get in, we'll get into the history, but I guess I want to talk more about it at this point about just what it's like day to day to be a firefighter. So you, you go through this strenuous process, you pass the tests, you get through uh, the physical portion and then you become a firefighter. And then each day you just you kind of show up and you're you're waiting for something horrible to happen right you're just kind of <laughs> sitting around in a way yes but to, but to back up just a little bit there's there's actually kind of an element of horrible in front of that so you get through the testing process and you're put on a ranked list and now you wait and you hope that they hire uh, that a department so I was on Portland's list and I took about 15 different entrance exams. And I was only offered three jobs out of the 15, and this is over about a two-and-a-half-year period of time. So it is, it is a lot of work and a lot of weight, hoping there's enough openings. And I was usually in the top 5 or 6%, but, you know, I'd be number number 12, and they'd hire three. I'd be number number six, they'd hire one. You know, I was, I was just within reach on those things. So as I was finishing up my fire science classes um, in the summer of 1983, uh, I, got, I got two job offers in one week, and that was quite a thrill. And then I I, work, I I chose the city of Salem to work there, and, and I worked there a year and then uh, left there to go to Portland. They offered me a job the next year, two and a half years after I had taken the test. And I was number 63 on the list for Portland. So you were just waiting for people to retire, essentially. Yeah, you have to wait for the openings yeah. or they're going to hire a training crew. It's not like it's they can just fill a room, oh, we've got a lot of people. There's most most uh, – they're government agencies, and so most of those government agencies only have a budget for so many slots, and so you have to you have to wait till there's slots available. And because training is a rigorous thing in itself that lasts a year, your first year of service, um, they don't just hire people one at a time. They usually hire a crew, and you're trained to work as a team of firefighters. Uh, the way you work on a fire engine, a fire truck, you know these things. So my crew was 12 people were hired, but they hadn't hired in two and a half years. So uh, this was kind of the last hurrah for this list. The list was going to be decommissioned, and so they needed to get a crew going. Yeah, that's that's interesting that that many people could wait that long. It seems like in two and a half years, I mean, you obviously had to have another job. You're just yeah. waiting for that. Well, I was 63rd on the list, and and if, if the 62 people ahead of me were not hired, because of the delay, a lot of people would turn it away. I've already got a job. I decided I don't want to do that. It's, you know, whatever. So. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, I don't know how many people they took off that list. It was probably, um, you know, maybe 25 mm-hmm. or 30 out and, and I was 63 and That's I was the next to the last. Yeah. Yeah. It worked out well. <laughs> so anyway, so then you, uh, when you get hired, when you finally get hired, you're usually your first, a, a window of time you're on what's called probation where you're being watched and tested and, you know, kind of, um, uh, taught and scored. You have to have an aptitude. Out of the 12 people I was hired with, one did not make it through the probationary process. And it wasn't that he wasn't physically capable. He just would kind of get freaked out with testing and other things. He felt like he wasn't academically up to snuff and uh, and he just uh, made some bad choices, uh, which was too bad because it's, uh, you know, you need to you need to do that. But 
to have the, the aptitude and the temperament to do the job are are quite important as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you're dealing with it's not a normal job. It's not like uh, bagging groceries at the grocery store. You're you're dealing with life and death, and so you, I'm sure we'll get into it. But you see some gnarly stuff. Yeah, and a lot of the processes aren't. You know, it's not it's not as much the academics. It's the idea that uh, can you can you meet the the pressure demand of having to get something done. Um, can you step up and and function as a team when it's not always easy? So some of these things, it's it's not just strictly did you get a a passing score. It's did you did you perform and step up when the pressure was on and you had to do this in a limited window of time and figure these things out. Mm-hmm. Are you good at working as a team or or does that just not you know not your deal? Yeah, to me it seems like it would be very similar to. Uh, being in the service and going to war because you're kind of all relying on each other, right? And if some, if one of the guys kind of like an outcast and you can't trust him, you don't really want him on the team, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's you know that's a hard judgment to make because again, I'll I'll speak in terms of Portland Fire. It's you know it's a big department, uh, some 650 uniformed firefighters. You know it varies a little bit from you know from year to year and over time, but it is. And there's there's it's a cross section of the world in there. There are, you know, there unfortunately there are people that uh, uh, that do things that cause them to lose their jobs. You know, um, you, you know, just watch the papers and it comes up every once in a while. Uh, there are people that work better on their own, and there are people that that are outstanding team players and all. And the great thing about a place like Portland is there's such diversity in the in the different job opportunities that are there. You know, whether it's in, I mean, it's a whole a whole world of terminology, but working on a fire engine, that's the water pump on wheels and all the hose in the back. Fire trucks, they have a different function, uh, work differently at a at an emergency scene. Hmm. They're they're the rigs with the ladders. Uh, you do forcible entry, ventilation, rescue work as opposed to getting water to the fire. There's rescue, so there's paramedics, and they usually work as a, as a smaller team in normal medical operations. Uh, but at a firefighting operation, they're just cross-trained, and they have to integrate into whatever needs to be done. Um, there is fireboats in Portland. You know, that's a whole different creature in itself. There is a, there's a couple of rescue units where you're specializing in rescue and using different uh, types of equipment and, and operations. Let's say somebody gets buried in a cave-in or um, a car goes into the river. And, you know, there's all these different things that come up with that. And then all the support jobs, there's jobs in training as, as trainers of firefighters. Uh, there's fire prevention, and that's where I spent. I actually spent 21 years in fire prevention. I worked in public education and community outreach. Okay, I loved the work, um, you know, but I still had to remain qualified to work in a line position uh, because during a greater alarm fire, when everybody was committed, we would have to fill in, you know, backfill in stations and be, you know, be able to do the job. Okay, so yeah, take take us through a normal day where you're you're at the shop hanging out waiting for something to happen. Well, so the day starts the the typical shift is is a 24-hour shift. Okay. Begins at 8 in the morning, ends at 8 the next morning. Um, the, the shift for many many well since 1948 has been one day on and two days off. So the two days off is not a weekend. You know, for, let me just say that. When you get off work at 8 o'clock Saturday morning, you go to back to work at eight o'clock Monday morning. So you might be pretty wrung out from being up all night and you sleep away half your Saturday, you know, so half of your weekend that you're starting already, not the night before, but but then is is shot. So anyway, the day starts at eight o'clock. Everybody gathers for roll call. You go over what the orders of the day are, what's going to be going on. 
Uh, do we have drill? Do we have, you know, this, that, or the other thing? Uh, inspection work, you know, the stations are inspected a few times a year by, uh, by chief officers. And so they look at the condition of the equipment, the condition of the buildings, the condition of the properties, uh, all of the things looking for readiness, the administrative readiness, paperwork, you know, all of that are looked over pretty carefully. And that usually involves several weeks of cleaning and, you know, just getting things organized to make it to make it look good. So sometimes those are the activities. Sometimes there's not much going on on a day like this. We're sitting here on, on Monday of Labor Day. Uh, usually those are kind of considered a holiday. You know, there's not much going on, but there could be other obligations in the community. There's there's uh, things where a neighborhood event is going on and they've asked for the fire crew to stop by. Mm -hmm. So once, uh, once dr um, a morning roll call is over about 8.30 in the morning, then housework, always housework. If I fought as many fires as I clean toilets, I tell you what, I would be one, uh, you know, one. Cleaning toilets at the, at the fire station? Yeah. Yeah. Cleaning, Just... floor, cleaning toilets, mopping floors, making beds, you know, cleaning the kitchen. Every shift you go through the routine to keep the place in order. And you're talking about a building, you know, a fire station with one crew there in Portland has four people on each of three shifts. And, uh, uh, you know, working there around the clock, 24 hours a day. If you didn't, if you weren't vigilant about taking care, doing the housework, keeping the floors swept, clean, mopped, all that stuff, it would very quickly be a real mess. Yeah. And Portland stations, there are several stations well over 100 years old that remain in service today uh, that, were, that were built over 100 years ago. And that doesn't just happen because, you know, they, they made them good. They have to be well cared for along mm -hmm. the way. And that's not just those living in them, but that's also the logistics center doing the building maintenance uh, and all the other things with it. So it, that's that's not common across the country. I've been in many communities and looked at fire stations that, yeah, they may be old, but boy, they're just horrible places. Yeah, it just seems like if you're in the kitchen and you're making a hot pocket, like you clean up your spot when you're done and then there shouldn't be that much to clean, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yes and no. But see, in the morning, you've got one shift coming on, one shift going off. So in a, in a, a single company station, you've got eight people there or so. Uh, in a double company, you could have, uh, uh, you know, 16 people crossing paths. And so, you know, people sit down, have breakfast, make stuff. Some people cook stuff. Some just throw together a piece of toast. You eat what's left over from the night before. Um, but I can tell you things get messed up. You mm -hmm. know, stuff's got to get put in the dishwasher and be run, um, you know, cleaning stuff up. It's not that anybody's a slob, but when you get that many people just, you know, kind of in their, in their home, uh, things just need to be picked up and cleaned up. And can you go to sleep whenever you want to? Not, not exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll get to that in a minute. So then, uh, you know, usually about 10 o'clock, there's some kind of drill almost every day. So it can be a television drill because when you're trying to train three shifts of people, three different days in 31 different locations, um, it's really a challenge to get information out in a timely manner to everybody. And so using television training, uh, a, a, a medical drill can be put on. And, and so things like, things like the emergency medical technician basic certification, which um, there are paramedics, but the basic, uh, which is what I was, requires, I think, 80 hours of, of continuing education every uh, two years. So 40 hours a year. So, you know, you, you've, you've got, you work 10 shifts a month, um, um, 120 shifts a year. You've got to get these hours in in order to do this. You have to get your firefighting hours. You've got to be driver certified. You've got to do those things. Sure. Some of the things are live drills where you work with other companies, you spray water, you, you know, you burn buildings, you do other things. 
this almost you know typically goes along in the 10 to 12 o'clock hour uh, so you've uh, you sit down and do that or you do a drill you gotten you know get familiar with a piece of equipment uh, you know other things like that so somewhere in there you've got to make a trip to the store and do the shopping now firefighters buy their own food that's not provided by this by the by the city by the department you know typically so everybody ponies up I don't know what what it is these days uh, I think it's you know eight to ten bucks a person and one person is usually chosen to cook mm -hmm. now sometimes you get a station where somebody really wants to be the full-time cook they enjoy that and they usually get relief from some other housekeeping duties you know things like that um, in some cases it just rotates so you get your turn and uh, if there's four people in the station that's usually twice a month uh, you know sometimes three times a month so you don't have to have a real deep um, cooking repertoire uh, <laughs> but if you're good at it, then you're probably going to get picked for it. Everybody yeah. wants good food. Oh, yeah. And there's stations where it's great. Somebody's a really good cook and, and they want to do it and they do it full time. Um, my last assignment before I went into the fire marshal's office, I went to the station and they said, you want to be full time cook? And I said, no, it's not really my thing. <laughs> well, no, if you do that, we, we won't make you do housework. No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, you won't have to pay uh, house dues. No, no, not. Well, you won't yet. I mean, they were desperate. They wanted anybody to cook. And it just, that wasn't me. It just wasn't what I like to do. Yeah. So we rotated and, and we get by. Yeah. Know. So if you have, if you have like three or four things that you can do reasonably well, um, you know, it only shows up every two months. You know, you, yeah, you, you don't have to repeat for two months. cereal. <laughs> well, if you don't, if, if you don't step up at least reasonably so, you get ridden so hard by everybody else. Yeah, it yeah. just, life becomes a misery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you've got to, you've got to have a few things you can pull out of the hat, but you can barbecue burgers or steaks yeah. and, you know, yeah. there's things to do. Nice. Uh, so anyway, that, you know, you do the shopping, usually, you, you know, hit a store somewhere in your response area isn't too difficult. Uh, people always say, why does the whole crew go? Because you can be dispatched from that store. Yeah. You can be sent to an emergency from there. Uh, there could be an emergency in the store. So you'll see sometimes, you know, all of a sudden somebody grabs a radio, they get a call, they park their cart. Uh, stores are usually pretty good about moving it aside and we'll come back and pick it up later. And then off they go to the emergency and it can be a few minutes or a few hours. You never really know. And you hope you get back uh, to get your groceries so you can have lunch. So then, uh, you know, in the, you know, after drill or between the 10 and 12 hours, sometimes during drill, somebody can be getting, getting lunch ready and getting everything uh, ready to go. So meals are pretty routine, routinely on the clock, you know, noon. Uh, and then sometimes drill in the afternoon or just things that need to be done around the station or even a little bit of free time. Now, keep in mind that throughout the day, there can be emergency responses going on that can take you away from whatever you're doing. Yeah, for sure. You've got to get back and, you know, try to get caught up on those things somewhere along the way. So then that brings you up to dinner time, which is, you know, probably 536 in most cases. Um, dinner. And, you know, everybody eats as a group, as a family. Uh, when I, The year I worked in Salem, it was, I didn't know it was odd at the time because it was my first uh, firefighting job, but... Uh, everybody was on their own to just make their own dinner and eat on their own. And it really was, you know, it worked out okay. We just had three three people in the station, but it really builds a lot of better teamwork and togetherness when you all dine together. It's uh, It really is one of the, I'd say, forced social things, but it's it's all for a good thing. Mm -hmm. It kind of keeps everybody engaged because it's, and I think, especially during the pandemic time period here, not that I'm working, I retired 11 years ago. But uh, it's easy for people to kind of peel off and go in their own place just 
for practical and safety reasons. Well, yeah, it's kind of like just eating dinner with your kids every night. Yeah. Like you don't have to, but it's a good thing to do as a, as a family. And I get that if yeah. you're if you're the family at the station. Yeah, you want to hang out and. Yeah. And you get to be very good friends with people. And yeah. some people like anything with family. You, you don't always get what you like, but you have to learn how to put up with each other. And, and usually if somebody's not a great fit, they, uh, um, you know, they'll end up transferring to another station. I've always said with 31 stations and three shifts, that's 90, you know, what, 93 different uh, team options. Yeah. If you can't find a place where you fit out of 93 different operating groups, then uh, – you probably don't even belong on the job. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> so, they're, you know, each station really develops their own character of people and people gravitate there. Yeah. Really busy stations tend to, uh, to tend to attract young, ambitious firefighters. As you get older, uh, sleeping through the night becomes a more valued thing. Yeah. And so a station that doesn't uh, necessarily run all night uh, becomes a, a more appealing option. Mm-hmm. So then after dinner, usually the evening, you're kind of left to your own to do things and people do a variety of things. Some people bring a project they might work on, you know, down in the basement or they might, you know, read or they might watch TV, you know, whatever. Uh, and bedtime, you know, 10, 10, 11, whatever. Sometimes that depends on how the day went and, you know, what all went on. But but you're required to be on the premises from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Oh, yeah. You yeah. can't go home and hang out with your family for three hours and come back. No. No. So there's yeah. a, yeah. So there's, you know, back in my day, we had a dormitory. Everybody slept in one big room. Nowadays, it's all individual sleeping rooms. So it's, it's a little more comfortable because you'd get somebody that would snore like a logger. And, uh, oh my God, you know, usually, usually anybody that was a really bad snore might end up with their own room because they'd say, look, you go in that room. You're yeah. just driving us all crazy. Um, but yeah, you, you hope you get to sleep through the night and sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't, um, you know, you can be up several times and boy, by the time morning comes, you go home and you sleep half of your day off away uh, because you've been up all night. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you, you make it through the night. So then what happens when it gets wild? You, you hear a bell? Yeah. You know, and, and nowadays it's more tones and, and a different type of light. Back in my day, uh, we had some pretty loud bells. You know, they'd have to be the big, the big round gongs. They were about, you know, 12, 15 inches in diameter gong type bells that would ring and and they'd kind of shock you awake uh, and lights would kick on interestingly after a time working in a station you can actually hear those things are triggered by the dis dispatch center so they send a signal to the individual station which triggers these these things that turn the lights on and and ring the bells and so you, some so, sorry interrupt someone will call 911 they mm -hmm. will say there's an issue it triggers this system at the station no no, no, no. It goes to a dispatcher who who does an intake on the call, uh, determines what is needed because, you know, one type of fire might need just a single fire engine to go. Another one might need what we call a first alarm assignment. So it'd be three fire engines, a fire truck, a rescue, a chief, and all those are dispatched and they would come from different stations, three different stations. And so you're saying based on the tone and the color of light, you know what you need to no, Send no, out. no, no, no. So, so, you know, if you're in a station long enough, you could actually wake up to the sound, some clicking and mechanical things going off before the lights turn on or before the bells would ring. Those would wake you because you'd find yourself, your eyes open, and then all of a sudden the lights would kick on and the bells would ring. It's like, you know, how do I, how do I know that? Well, you just hear the noises behind the scenes in the yeah. station. But you can, you know, if you're sleeping pretty soundly, uh, most of the time the lights kick on, the bells ring, and then a voice comes over the speaker system and says, engine 
three, we've got a, you know, a, a, a person not breathing at, you know, such and such an address, um, you know, map page, whatever. So, you know, if we're not familiar with where it is, which isn't common, uh, you can open a book, a map book and have all that. All these things are on the computer now, yeah. but the voice would go through and then it would repeat it. And, you know, you might jot things down and your crew gets on the rig and off you go. And is it just like you see in the movies, everybody slides down the pole or is that just something? No, no, there's stations with poles. There's okay. there's a number of stations still have poles. It's still the quickest way to get from up to down. Because they have the, the living quarters above all the trucks. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. some okay. stations. Some are some are one story. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's pretty cool, actually. It's pretty fun to, to use those things. It's It can get you in trouble at night if you don't, quite wake up before you go down. Uh, yeah. You need to dress accordingly. You know, if yeah. you're in the shower and you get a you get a call, uh, you don't want to go down a pole wet. Yeah. You know, you got to get a sweatshirt or something on because one of two things can happen. Either one, you're too wet to grip the pole and you slide too fast and can't stop. Or number two, you're not wet enough and you don't slide on the pole and your skin rubbing against it oh. sort of wraps around. Uh, yeah. It can be it can be real brutal. So, you, you know, you learn the tricks to going down. Uh-huh. Uh, but the poles, you know, they need you, you, they need to be polished and slippery um, because if they get all sticky with hand oil, then they don't slide well at all. Yeah, I get that. Okay. So then you slide down or you don't. You end up in the truck. Do you always have... A specific driver for the front and the back. Yeah, so there's assigned spaces. So the um, one position is the officer, and that's a, pr- a promoted position. They're the the head of the team, uh, and and they've you know they're pay they have a higher pay scale accordingly. So it's it's a civil service test to be promoted and work in that capacity. And their job is really to oversee the operations, make decisions on the part of the crew. Uh, they do the paperwork. They do the administrative work. They're they're in charge of the crew on that shift. Um, there's a driver now in, in, in some places, the driver is a tested position. So it also has a pay increase and it's a classified position. That person does that in Portland. It's just rotated around. Everybody is a qualified driver. Now, sometimes you have somebody that really wants to be the full-time driver, kind of like cooking. Uh, sometimes people like to rotate it. I never liked it that much. I would rather not be locked to it all the time personally. Yeah. How often is somebody driving the truck and they, they, run into something before they even get to the, the scene. <laughs> Not that often. Usually you, when you run into something, you're backing up, you're doing you're doing something, maneuvering it around. Getting down the road is not the hardest thing in the world. Okay. Uh, that's actually a little bit a little bit easier. But when you get into tight spots, you're trying to maneuver. Um, and again, backing up is is always a hazard. I was taught early on never put yourself in a position where you have to back up. Yeah. Uh, look ahead if you're in a parking lot. Make sure you're not getting down a dead end thing. Um, backing up, you know, the, the 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 protocol is very very specific. You have two people backing you up, two people off the rig behind, looking out for anything you might run into, and you've got to keep them in sight in your mirror. Mm-hmm. And it's good practice because you know these fire engines, thirty thousand pounds of vehicle. It's big, it's heavy, and it can do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. You know, backing up, it's usually more minor stuff. But if you're going down the road and you run into another car, you're going to win every time <laughs> uh, because it's yeah. 30,000 pounds versus yeah. 3,000 pounds. And well, then, and then of course, you've got things like the ladder trucks. You talk about, you know, driving the back. You know, so now you've got somebody driving the front end you've got, and you've got somebody driving the back end, the tillered uh, ladder trucks. And what is the reason that you need a driver at the back? Maneuverability because you have a – I don't know how long they are, 40 feet long trailer behind a, a tractor. 
And it just, it's very maneuverable when you can steer the back end. Gotcha. So you can go down, it's actually more maneuverable than a, than a fire engine that's, that's 30 feet long. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty interesting job in itself because you're back there, it's quiet, you don't have any brakes, you don't have any throttle, all you do is steer. Interestingly, if you're gonna make a right turn, you turn left. And if oh, you're gonna make wow. a left turn, you turn right, unless you're backing up and then it's upside down, you gotta think of it upside down. It's a whole, a whole world of interesting yeah, that could itself. get confusing if you're used to just driving regular yeah. cars, you know? Yeah, and then and, and then it really takes a lot of teamwork, more so than you would think. So the the driver, the the driver of the of the tractor, the puller, um, they have to have faith that the the person in the tiller seat understands what they're doing and vice versa. The person in the tiller seat needs to needs to know the character of the, the driver of the front end and work with them. So when, when people work together as a team for enough time, they, they can be very, very uh, smooth and, and really maneuverable. Well, and you're on some sort of comm, intercom yeah. set, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So everybody's wearing the same system yes. or just the drivers? No, everybody in the, in, everybody. The, in the apparatus. So back to the position. So you've got the officer rides in the front seat on the passenger side. The driver is driving, of course. Uh, and again, that could be a rotating job. Everybody might share. And then you've got the two back seats. Uh, one in in Portland would be designated the the hydrant person, uh, usually on the on the curb side, on the passenger side, and then the nozzle person is on the other side. And that literally is what it is. So if you're going to go to a, a fire scene and you're going to connect up to the hydrant, the person, the hydrant person behind the officer is going to get off, grab the hose off the back, wrap it around the fire hydrant. The fire engine will proceed to the fire. And then uh, once the hose is laid out, the hydrant person then goes about the connection to the hydrant and gets everything hooked up and water going through the hose to the fire engine. When you get to the fire scene, the nozzle person gets off, takes the, the load of hose that's going to go to the fire with the nozzle on it and get that all stretched out and wait for the driver who then becomes the, the pump operator to connect the water coming from the hydrant to the pump and then connect the hose coming off of the fire engine going to the fire with the nozzle person and then get the water moving through the pump and into the nozzle. And so how do you start the water? You start it from the hydrant, right? You right. twist the top? Well, yeah, there's a there's a nut on the top that does it. Now, the fire engine uh, carries water, a little bit of water, 500 gallons. But the big hose, 500 gallons going through the big hose, full blast, uh, will be used up in two minutes. Yeah. Because a, a two-and-a-half-inch fire hose will flow 250 gallons of water in a minute. So you have to be judicious if you're going to use that pump water, that, that tank water. Um, but in the meantime, you're getting the water from the hydrant up and you start, you switch over to just feeding off the hydrant or refilling the tank. Yeah. When would you just use the tank if you're out in... A car fire, okay. you, know, you know, where you can just use, a, you know, a hundred gallons, okay. uh, a small grass fire, um, you know, just different things. Sometimes you go, you go to the scene with the fire engine and you fight the fire with your tank water and you call to the next arriving fire engine, get a hydrant and bring up and hook up to us. So you can focus on fighting that fire with an initial hit mm -hmm. and knowing that you're going to get your water supply in a couple of minutes. <laughs> so even though there's multiple fire engines at a fire scene, usually there's only one that's needed. For the others, you just need the people on those fire engines. You don't need another thing to pump water. Mm -hmm. When you get into bigger commercial fires like, like this building that we're in here in this commercial area, now you're talking about um, probably having to have a, a water a water supplier presence on multiple sides of the building. So now you're going to need two or three operating fire engines on different sides of the building. And how often do you pull up and there's a car in front of the hydrant? Oh, 
often enough, but it is it really that big a deal? No, I, no, no, it isn't. No, yeah. It's not like backdraft where you're going to, you know, waste your time breaking out the windows of the car just to make a point. <laughs> I was going to say, you could just push it with the fire truck. <laughs> no, no, that would, boy, I can tell you, city risk management would be uh, very unhappy about that. No, fire hose bends and it's inconvenient and it slows things down. Rarely is it, uh, is it a crippling factor where you, you cannot make a connection to the hydrant. Um, but you know, for very practical reasons, but the fire service hopes that people don't do that. There's there's a reason why it's there. Yeah. And in fact, people, property owners that have a fire hydrant in, in front of their home, uh, you know, to keep vegetation back and to keep it clear is is really a nice thing too. Mm-hmm. It helps firefighters do their job when they've got to do that. And is there any chance that you can hook up and there's no water there? Does that ever happen? No, it's pretty rare. Sometimes a hydrant will break. Uh, if you open them too fast, the surge of water can actually break them uh, down under the ground. I've seen that where the, the hydrant just literally starts raising up out of the ground Whoa. on a fountain of water. Um, that's called water hammer. So if you if you release water too hard or shut it down too hard, the surge in water just you know hits and stops. You can hear a clank and and piping at home. Uh, when you get you know water hammer like that, and that can really break things. Well, so, also so, if if the hydrant was super old and it had never been used, wouldn't it be more likely to have something like that happen? Well, they all get used. You know, it used to be the, the fire bureau used to go around and do hydrant tests every year. So we'd literally drive. So there's 31 fire stations. So the city's broken down into 31 areas, and you'd each shift would have a certain number of fire hydrants, and you'd go around and you'd open them up and flow water through them, and uh, make sure they work. And if they weren't, you know, we'd put graphite on the threads to make sure they'd come apart. You know, the, the, the caps would come off easy. And if anything wasn't right with it, we'd report it to the Water Bureau and they would come out and fix it. Gotcha. I think I, – I don't think that's done anymore. I think the Water Bureau takes responsibility for it. So, uh, so there, you know, it's hard to say how often that gets done. Yeah. Everybody's working with reduced staffing and everything else. And that may be one of the things that just doesn't get done as uh-huh. often or as well. Okay. So you show up at – at the scene and are there certain um, tasks or certain emergencies that you hope for and ones that you're kind (laughs) of worried about? Like I imagine a car wreck would just be awful and, but like a house fire might be kind of cool. Well, you know, so it's, you mentioned this earlier, you know, you're, if you're hoping to do your job on a given day, you you are hoping for the misfortune of someone. Yeah. And there's not really anything cool about that. Yeah. Um, you know, as a young firefighter, you want to you want to use your skills, your training, all the things that you know and put it to work. From a practical standpoint, you don't. You know, you don't because a house fire is not a good day for anybody. Yeah. A car wreck isn't a good day for anybody. Uh, doing CPR on somebody is not a good day for the person having CPR done on them. You know, you can be successful as a firefighter doing any number of things, but you're really riding on the coattails of somebody's really bad day. So it's uh, it's um, um, <laughs> it's just an interesting thing. And, and it took me a few years to sort of come to that realization that, that when I was excited about the great job that, that me or my crew got to do, that it was on somebody else's worst day. Yeah, I, I can see that. And... It, what about the danger factor? Did you ever show up and be like, man, I might die today? No, no. I mean, you know, and I think every firefighter has that realization that it can happen uh, in, in this, you know, to, to, to speak historically in the, since 1853, when Portland Fire began, 
providing protection, 75 firefighters have died due to the job. That's it? 75 in 160 years? Yeah. I mean, I'm, no disrespect to those 75 people, but it seems like it'd be way more than that. Well, and, and in places like New York City, you know, they have, you know, something like 17,000 firefighters uh, as opposed to Portland has 650. Okay. And they'll have, you know, five or six a year. And, uh, you know, that's nothing to be proud of. I mean, it's a lot more. I don't know. I'd have to do some math to say what percentage, but... Uh, you know, all 75 are, are things that probably shouldn't have happened, mm. you know, even though they did, even though, uh, you know, they can have some pretty remarkable stories behind them. They're still deaths that, that should not happen. It's a hard thing. They should all be preventable to a certain extent, um, but it's the nature of the job that sometimes you get caught in ways or places that you don't know. You know, one in particular was a guy that uh, got caught in a dust explosion in a furniture factory. So making furniture, a lot of sawdust. Um, you get in there, if, if there's a fire and there's a lot of wood, so it can happen. You've got machines, you've got wood. And then uh, even in the course of just spraying a fire hose, you can stir up dust. And if dust ignites, it's like gasoline. <laughs> it's very fine particulate matter that can burn. And the flame, if it catches it on fire, will propagate through a, a cloud of of wood shavings, really, and it it it's almost like an explosion, and it can consume a room like this almost instantly, mm -hmm. because all that, you know, all that finely uh, divided particles of fuel, which wood is, catch fire very very fast. Mm -hmm. The finer the particle, the faster it'll burn. So there was a guy in there doing that, and. <laughs> probably shouldn't have been and it ignited the whole place? Well, no, it was, there was a fire and, and I don't know that what he did kicked up any dust, but there was a dust explosion and, and he died in there. Hmm. So it's just the nature of, of, a, of a building like that. Now, you know, there's no surprise that that building was that way. So, you know, doing pre-fire work, that's another thing that firefighters do on a typical day is they might go out and, and uh, you know, again, take a building like this, it looks pretty inert from the outside, but what's inside? And they need to know, are there hazardous materials or processes? Uh, furniture manufacturing is is pretty, you know, there's no big guess behind it. You can kind of see what those are. But there's a lot of other things that are pretty dangerous buildings. And so getting caught in a windowless building where doors are hard to find, the room we're in here is surrounded by curtains. I tell you what, in a, in a dark room when you can't see and there's a fire and you're going around and you're running into curtains, you can't find another door out. Maybe there is one, maybe there isn't one. Mm -hmm. It can be, uh, it, it can get you trapped. It can cause a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's all part of why you train and why you learn the repetition of learning about these things to be watchful for them. And it's also the reason you work as a team because where one person could get in trouble working as a team, what one person doesn't think of, the other one might. Sure. And that, uh, that saves a lot of things. So, the the realization is the job is dangerous and you know that the 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 crippling effect of fear of what might happen um i don't think most people dwell on that uh because they feel confident competent and trained and and with good teamwork mm -hmm. um but it doesn't mean it can't happen and and there are you know really bad situations that come up sometimes yeah it just seems super unpredictable and I mean, you train and you practice for the worst and you, you have a good head on your shoulders and you're prepared for anything, but yeah, you kind of just never know what's going to happen. 
Yeah. And, and the heck of it is, so by the time a fire is done, it's been investigated and cause has been determined, you really know everything about it. And you can work backwards and know just what happened and how it should have been. And so, we'll, so fire departments will critique fires and say, where could we have done better? What could we have done different? The trouble is when you arrive, you know nothing. You know you have a building on fire. You know there's fire coming out of the roof, so it must be up into the attic space. It's somehow compromised that. Or there isn't. There's just smoke coming out doors and windows. Where is it coming from? You know, you can look at signs about where it's the hottest or what's going on. All that smoke will eventually convert to flame. But are you there quick enough? And and then uh, if you take the wrong steps, can you can you cause what's called a backdraft? I mean, literally, that that's a term um, – that allows all of those unburned gases to ignite and with explosive force. By opening a door that allows yeah, so think wind of, through? Yeah, think about something like a, uh, uh, like a wood stove. And you can close down all the vents and everything, and it'll smolder and be really hot. And there's not necessarily any flame. Things are burning without flame because there's not enough oxygen to let it flare up. As soon as you open the doors to the wood stove or even, even a campfire, it can smolder down. Uh, you put air on it and all of a sudden it flares up. Mm -hmm. And that's what a backdraft is. So it, it actually consumes the oxygen in a, in a closed space or a place that has limited, uh, limited airflow. And um, it becomes so little oxygen that fire can't burn, but everything is hot and smoldering. So a door gets opened up or a window gets opened up, oxygen comes in. Immediately, all of that, all of that unburned gases that are coming off that, that couldn't ignite because there was no oxygen suddenly have oxygen and they ignite. And so, again, the flame propagates through it very quickly. You know, it's basically an explosion, mm -hmm. um, a fast-moving uh, flame front, and it fills the room and it, it, under pressure, and it's got to go out somewhere. And so usually that place is the same place you just came in. Yeah. And so it blows through you. Now your your equipment can protect you or you may not. Or if you're in there, you know, you can go from 800 degrees to, you know, 1800 degrees pretty quickly. And that can overwhelm even the best protective equipment a firefighter is yeah. going to have. So what would happen? Your stuff would just melt? Helmets will melt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, coats will burn, even though they're fire resistant. You know, everything will burn if it gets hot enough. Everything. Yeah, yeah for sure. And what about what about car wrecks? You show up, did you, do you guys use Jaws of Life? Yeah. To, yeah, to get people out? Yeah, yeah. Just whatever tool is necessary. Again, there's, you know, a, <laughs> you just compartments full of different tools and things from pry bars to to hydraulic cutters, jaws of life, those kind of things. A and car can be disassembled pretty quickly. And they're just essentially huge scissors, yeah? Yeah, they either spread and, and push things apart or they, they can have cutters on them that, that uh, cut the, the posts, the A pillars, the B pillars, the C pillars. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not, you know, it's not really hard to, to destroy a car, to cut it apart. What gets tricky is somebody's inside yeah. and you have to be very careful. I remember a, a wreck out on St. Helens Road a car pulled out of a side street, another car doing about 60 miles an hour, hit it broadside, uh, killed the driver, knocked them clear across the car underneath the person in the passenger seat. And there were two kids in the back seat. And we got there and it was it was a mess. And the uh, we opened the, the lift gate. They'd been grocery shopping. So the back of this little car was filled with groceries and things. And one of the kids was trapped in the back. And I climbed in the back to try to lend some comfort. I mean, I really couldn't get to her. She was pinned into the back seat. And so they're trying to cut the door open to get the two people in front out, one of which was was dead. Um, 
And this girl in the back, you know, as they're, as they're working on that, the side of the car is actually pushing in as they're trying to pry open the door, the rest of the crew. And I'd have to kind of say, hey, you know, you got to get a different point. You're going to crush this girl back here. And she's already freaking out. She was like nine years old. Mm. Um, so things like that. It's, uh, it's really, really tricky when people are inside um, because you can, you can hurt them in, in your effort, breaking glass, crushing metal, um, all those things. Well, and that's brutal on your 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 mental, your psyche. Like, how many times did you show up at something like that and have nightmares later? Well, you know, I can't say that I had many nightmares. You know, you certainly rethink it and you hope that things come out well. Um, it's you know, it, I'll, I'll give you another another story as an example uh, because it usually has to hit a personal note. Yeah. To really be crippling. You know, you, you kind of, as a firefighter, you have to, you have to look at it as your job. So as, as an example, if, uh, if my wife gets hurt and I want to help her, it's personal. You know, that's my wife. My God, I, I can't have her hurt. If I go to an emergency scene and I'm helping someone else, I'm doing my job. It's not somebody related to me. It's not personal. Mm -hmm. uh, when it gets personal, that's when it can get really difficult. So um, one day I was working at a station over in Northeast Portland. I was working a double shift, so I was going to be there for 48 hours. And into the uh, the second shift, my wife called me and she said, hey, the car broke down. I'm, I'm stuck. I can't do anything, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I went and talked to my officer and we had a five-person crew there. And, uh, and he said, you know, go ahead, take a couple hours, go get your car running, come back, and, you know, we'll just run without you for, for a little bit. And he got all that okayed. So off I went. So while I was gone, the crew got dispatched to a shooting. And a nine-year-old boy was shot in the head and killed in this shooting. And one of the guys on the crew happened to have a nine-year-old son. And uh, even though he lived, you know, out in the rural world, not inner northeast Portland, it wasn't, you know, those kind of things weren't going to happen the way this played out. Um, it, it just uh, really messed him up for a long time mm -hmm. because he made a personal connection to a child that was the same age, something about it uh, just clicked uh, in his personal world. And it was a crippling thing for him for quite some time, probably, you know, something that he'll, he lived with forever. And the rest of the crew without that personal connection, it was, yeah, tragic. It was terrible. It was another thing that you, you know, that you go to and, and have done. I think of incidents through my career, some just really stand out. I mean, mm -hmm. really some horrific things or just the nature of what they were just, you know, really, really clicked with me. That's Yeah, that definitely seems like the worst part. Um, I had a guy in here about a year, year and a half ago named Tim Beaker, and he doesn't do it anymore, but his job was, um, I believe he worked for um, the morgue, mm. and his job was to be the first on site after somebody was deceased, and he would have to remove the bodies. Yeah. And I couldn't fathom that job every day. Like all he's doing is interacting with dead bodies. Right. And he, he quit for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, I don't know how. Well, and, you know, and in, in, in the case of, um, of what you do in the fire bureau, a lot of times you're dealing with uh, um, bodies that have been mangled in a collision, uh, burned, you know, things – and that, you know, the, the really difficult thing about that kind of stuff is that it, it doesn't, it doesn't look real. 
You know, death in particular just doesn't when someone when someone passes, even if it's a heart attack or they an elderly person dying in their sleep, there's there's something missing in what you see in them. You know, the soul is gone. And I've always found that to be the thing that that I guess bothers me the most. And the more the more removed from from what a human being is supposed to look like that it is, the more difficult it is to process. Because you look at somebody that's you know, that's that's been burned, you know, killed in the fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a it's a horrible sight because people don't look like that. Yeah, you know, you're not accustomed to seeing that, and it's a hard thing to process. It's tragic enough on its own, but just visually speaking, it's uh, it's very difficult uh, to to see those things. But on the flip side, you've probably had interactions with people where you saved their life. And that's got to be pretty powerful too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, say to me, nothing particular stands out. I'm sure there were many things uh, that led to it, but uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you're helping people. You see them better off leaving a scene than they were when you got there. Um, it's it's you know sometimes in the city here, some things happen so quickly because resources are so close. So in in Portland, firefighters respond and provide uh, emergency medical care right away. There's 31 different locations, so you can get someplace fast. There are ambulances as well. Sometimes the ambulance gets there first. They're run by a private company, AMR, uh, but sometimes not. So, um, but wherever they are, they're they're not too far behind. You can get them loaded up and, and off to a hospital pretty quick. You don't have to mess around at the scene. Um, many years ago, I was over in Central Oregon, out in the middle of nowhere. My uncle and I were there. My uncle was a firefighter with Portland as well, and we heard somebody coming over the radio saying somebody was having a heart attack. And we went over and see what we could do to help. <laughs> and, and people, uh, you know, when you say you're a firefighter, everybody just kind of scatters, like, "Oh, good, do something." <laughs> we got a doctor here. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, settle in and we start doing CPR for an hour. You know, waiting for help to arrive, you know, any any help besides us. Aren't you dead after an hour and not breathing? Well, we 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 had a we had a, a uh, an ambu bag where we could breathe for them. Um, we could circulate blood, and and we were, you know, in in Portland, uh, in town, that person. You'd start doing CPR. You'd do it while they're getting loaded onto the gurney, loaded into the ambulance, maybe even on the way to the hospital. But within you know, within 10 minutes, they could be in an emergency room. We did CPR out in the middle of nowhere with very little working for us in the way of tools and equipment for an hour before an ambulance arrived. Uh, but the thing was, our CPR was getting a pulse, uh, bringing color back to the person. Um, but when we'd stop, it would all go. So something major went wrong uh, with this person. It was like a 45-year-old man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it, it could have been you know, a, a, a aorta blown out or, you know, something something that probably wasn't going to be fixed, but it was very interesting to spend that much time doing CPR on somebody because it never had that experience. In town here, everything happens too fast. They get moving to more definitive services very, very quickly. Yeah. So that must have been pretty frustrating. You're like, when is this going to happen? <laughs> well, yeah. And you, you don't stop. Family's all there. They're all, you know, wringing their hands, you yeah. know, crying. You know, you don't want to just give up and say, eh, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. So, you know, we're not going to bother. So you do what you can and and you hope for the best. And in this case, the best wasn't going to be an outcome. He didn't make there it. Was, no. No. Hmm. 
Well, uh, we could. <laughs> that was all really good, and we could continue a bunch more. I, I feel like we should get into the history aspect, though. Um, so you, correct me if I'm wrong, you were in Salem for a while, then you were in Portland for a while, and then you moved to the prevention team. Well, so I, I worked as a firefighter in the uh, city of Salem for a year in 83 into 84. In July of 84, I went to work for city of Portland uh, as a line firefighter. Uh, and I, I uh, worked on the line until 1990, April of 1990, and then promoted into the fire marshal office and okay. then uh, worked in, in uh, public education and public outreach. Okay. So during that time, I was still a firefighter for the rest of my career, which was up till 2011. Okay. But at some point during that time, you started to discover uh, documents and and other things, and it made you decide that you wanted to to like document the history of the Portland Fire Department, right? Not exactly. No? And I'll say even now, I'm, I'm no, I'm not a history buff. You know, as strange as it may sound, and my website uh, has a mountain of information. You know that that's been assembled. But it all started – so, in, in, you know, being an educator in a place like the city of Portland. So just as an example, people think, oh, firefighters go into schools. You know, OK, that's great. They do. Um, we had a, an education staff that specialized in education, just like a, a firefighter might specialize as a paramedic, you know, a higher level than the base level. And so we had somebody that was, uh, that was responsible for getting into the schools. Well, guess what? In the city of Portland's response area, there's 118 public schools. About 75 private schools. So, you know, all in all, somewhere around 200, you know, and then multiply how many classrooms are in each school and you realize it's a ridiculous idea that you're going to have a significant educational impact on the youth through the school system. Now, you can target, say, all third graders and, you know, and seventh graders, you know, do something like that. There's different ways to go about it. You can hope that firefighters from stations will go into the schools in their response area, but they're not educators. Yeah. You know, they can go in and have great public relations, have a good time, um, leave a good impression, have people thinking well about firefighters. Occasionally, you get somebody that was a, a teacher before they became a firefighter, and maybe they do a little bit better job. But even at that, very difficult. I would go into my kids' school. Uh, you know, I lived in Gresham at the time, and I'd go in and do their classrooms. And uh, uh, it was a big job just to once a year during fire prevention week. Teachers wanted me to come into different classrooms. And after a while, I was doing the whole school. <laughs> but it was a couple weeks worth of work for yeah. one school. So anyway, um, so I had this idea, uh, kind of a dream of having a place where we would bring people to educate them. Because again, in a place like Portland, you've got to load up your dog and pony show. You've got to drive to the location. That might take 30 minutes. Unload your dog and pony show. Do your dog and pony show. Reload your dog and pony show. Drive back to where you came from and now gear up for the next one or whatever it would be. We spend a lot of time coming and going and, you know, and messing with stuff like that. And I thought, man, if we could have a place where people would come to us, it would be so much more efficient. And so um, it was really the idea of creating a safety learning center, you know, kind of like a school for fire safety that was that we put together that would have people come in. And I shopped this idea around with my boss and he was in favor of it, but you got to have a place to do it. Yeah. Well, uh, as it would happen, and it's a, it's a long story, I won't go into how it all came about, but... The old fire station over at 35th and Belmont in the fire in the Belmont uh, business district uh, in 2003 was vacated because a new station was built up on uh, 39th, okay. Cesar Chavez over on the uh, south of Hawthorne. 
And so the city now had this asset of this building and it was a 1912 firehouse, you know, really great place, been in service continuously since 1912, uh, that was uh, available for something. And a promise had been made by a prior commissioner that it wouldn't be sold for a McMinimins or, you know, some commercial use. And so the chief came to me one day and said, hey, would this work as this learning center idea? And I said, well, it's not my ideal vision. It's not in a place that's, uh, you know, tourist friendly, like downtown on the waterfront or anything like that. There's not great parking, but, you know, it's it's a pretty good building. It's small. It's got character. Got a lot of character, got a lot of story. And I said, you know, and we have nothing else because I'd been shopping things around and you'd find a good location. They'd say, well, okay, you've got, you want this location. Where are you going to get the money? Well, I don't know. We can't get money till we get a location. And you'd find somebody with money and they'd say, where are you going to put it? Well, we can't put it somewhere till we have money. So it was a real, you know. Catch 22. Yeah. A real uh, uh, chicken and egg thing. So anyway, so the decision was made, hey, we're going to build this safety learning center here. So I got to work at raising some funds and doing some other things. And, and you know, over the course of time, we built this. So we contracted with a, uh, uh, a company out in Gresham called Formations Incorporated. And they do uh, exhibits, design museums and things like that. And we didn't want to make a museum because that's just a room full of old stuff. You know, we wanted a dynamic learning experience. And that's what they do. They've done the Columbia River uh, Maritime Museum, okay. the, um, uh, the Forest Learning Center up on the way to Mount St. Helens. You know, things that are really, really great uh, learning environments. So I got together with them. We talked about, okay, what, you know, what are we, what are we going to do? We're, you know, typically the best thing to do is tell a story. And I said, okay, I can get that. And they said, how about the story, Firefighters Are Heroes? And I said, how about not? <laughs> because the last thing we need is the fire service patting ourselves on the back. What we do in the community, the community can easily decide whether it's heroic, whether it's, you know, just good business or, or whatever it is. Um, there needs to be more than that. And what we really settled on is, is the history of the fire service was compelling enough. Because the fire service has existed in the city of Portland since 1853 for one simple reason. People are unsafe. And they're unsafe every day. And that's evidenced by the number of calls that come to 911. Because when they're unsafe and something goes wrong, uh, they're, they need help. And that's where the fire service comes in. And every piece of equipment, every tool, every, every fire engine, every, every bit of training is all designed around the idea that you're addressing or mitigating someone's unsafe behavior. I mean, it's, it's really pretty simple. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, um, we had a wealth of historic artifacts and stories and things. They were just all very, very disorganized. A lot of stuff was shoved in a room behind a room down at the central fire station. There's a furnace room. And behind this furnace room, there was a door that went to this little antechamber where somebody had been squirreling stuff away for years. Nobody knew what was even in there. And so I kind of got the green light to use any of the artifacts, equipment, stories, and things. So the first thing I had to do was organize all this stuff because nobody – for a, for an agency that's steeped in traditions like the fire services, they were pretty poor caretakers of, of their history. Yeah. So I had to get this stuff and, and really begin to unravel it and understand this story and how it – how the organization came about, how we could use different tools and equipment to create displays and exhibits and tell the story. So that's what immersed me in the history. And along with that, um, there was a, well, so I had a, I had a guy volunteering for me. Uh, he, he worked in, uh, 
in the in a suburb of Boston. He was a he was a firefighter and a, worked in the dispatch center. And he wanted to do some research because uh, I was surrounded by all this research stuff. He says, "Hey, I'd like to look into the uh, the people that are buried over at Lone Fir Cemetery." So in the heart of Lone Fir Cemetery, which is between Southeast 20th and 26th and between Stark Street and Morrison, right across the street from Central Catholic High School, okay. there's a 30-acre cemetery there. In the middle of it, block number five, uh, numerically the fifth block created, was deeded to the Portland Fire Department on November 16th of 1862. But now it's full of dead bodies? 147 dead bodies. There's uh. still room for more. But it was it was dedicated for firefighters to have a free burial. Oh, see, I thought you meant you were going to try to use it for something oh, no. else. Okay, no, no, okay, no, okay. no. It's, so there were there's people buried there. You know, up up to last year, there was you know somebody was gotcha. Uh, but you have to be a Portland firefighter or be affiliated to be buried there. Anyway, he he started looking at some of the names and researching newspaper articles and things, and he came up with a bunch of names that were never attributed to um, a line of duty death that really should have been, and we don't really know why they weren't. Um, you know, typically a line of duty death, you think of somebody dying out of fire, you know, roof falling on them, you know, something terrible happening. And some of these weren't quite that nature, but they happened on the job during operations or other things. So that got me looking at some other things as well and, and you know, really coming up with a, you know, a pretty substantial list of people that should have been represented. And that took me down a path of of trying to get them recognized for their contribution and their their death in the line of duty. And along with that and all the other um, history stuff, uh, I just I just became immersed in it. And after a while, anybody that had a question on history would call me. Uh, <laughs> you and became, I became the guy. The, the de facto historian. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been referred to as the historian. And it's like, well, okay, I guess if, you know, because somebody, somebody will call me. Well, you know, here's a, here's a great example, something we just discovered. On eBay for about the past seven or eight years, there's been this badge, a Portland paid fire department badge. So the Portland Fire Department began as in 1853 as the Portland Volunteer Fire Department. In 1883, uh, they finally created a budget with the city to pay firefighters, except they'd only pay three person, three firefighters per piece of equipment. The rest were volunteers still. But the name changed to Portland Paid Fire Department, PPFD. In about 1904, civil service was enacted, and it became the Portland Fire Department. And then I think in, in the 50s, the city went to calling the different departments in the city bureaus, and it became Portland Fire Bureau. And then in, you know, sometime during my career, Portland Bureau of Fire Rescue and Emergency Services, and then in 2006, shortened to Portland Fire and Rescue. Okay. So these are real markers that tell you what's, you know, something about time periods. Uh, this badge was on eBay, and it was PPFD, Portland Paid Fire Department, gold badge, said in the little ring in the middle, uh, chief engineer. Now, chief engineer is a term for the person in charge of the department, but they used chief engineer during the volunteer period from 1853 to 1883. On the back was engraved in this, from the members of PPFD to Harry Morgan, excuse me, who was the second chief of the paid fire department, but he was the 15th chief of the volunteer, chief engineer of the volunteer fire department. And it was dated May 30th, 1888. <laughs> and he was chief from 1884 to 1892. So in the middle of his term, his eight years, what was it, 84? Yeah. In, in the middle of his eight years as chief, the membership gives him this commemorative badge. And it was, it was citing his work as chief engineer 
you know, based on the front. So I think it was some kind of a shout out to his his time as as a volunteer chief. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, this badge was floating around out there. This guy had it. He had a huge price on it, and uh, we started. Me and another guy started talking to him, saying, "Look, let's bring this thing back to Portland." And he said, "Well, you know, five years ago I tried, and I called Portland Fire Department, Portland Fire Bureau, and." And uh, they said they weren't interested. And I said, no, nah, they're interested. <laughs> you know, this is a great historic item. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we negotiated with him. We were able to buy it and bring it back. It's now framed. It's going to be on display in the Central Fire Station, cool. along with a picture of Harry Morgan, uh, his story, you know, when he was chief and, you know, and, and the whole thing about him. And uh, it's just a great artifact that nobody, you know, it was a neat thing. A lot of firefighters saw it and thought, wow, that'd be cool to have, but I can't afford that solid gold. Um <laughs> But uh, um, when you put the story with it, it, it's just it's just an item. It's like this coffee cup. It's just an item. But if if somebody famous used this coffee cup and did something remarkable with it, it suddenly becomes something completely different. Well, even just the fact that it still exists from yeah. 1883, that yeah. is – stuff doesn't – make it that long from back then. Well, and his obituary, quite interestingly, you know, if I found that and it says no known family members were, were, sur- survived him. So it's not like somebody got that item and, and put it away. Nobody knows how it went from him dying with no relatives to take his things to somehow ending up in a, uh, in uh, basically an estate sales shop in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, that's so. pretty wild. So did you have did you find anything from the original founding in 1853? Do you guys have any oh, yeah. of that? Yeah? Oh yeah, there's a ton of stuff. There's like newspaper what? articles, there's there's all kinds of information. What about like a fire truck or a hose or or anything? Well tangible? yeah, there's oh yeah, yeah, there's a lot of artifacts. So, you know, Portland has a they have um uh, an 1859 hand pumper still in their possession. They have an 1860 hose cart. They have an 1866 ladder truck. All these are hand-pulled vehicles because horses weren't affordable until 1883 when the when they had a budget to pay people and buy horses. So they had like long sticks and the guys had to pull it down the street? Yep, exactly. Weren't they super heavy? Yep. Yeah. And the streets were made of dirt or most of the year mud. So your your house burned down before they got there? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> but you would hope not. But yeah. Yeah. Sometimes firefighting is about protecting what's not on fire more than it is putting out what is on fire. That's just kind of a reality that exists today. And that's all about the time to get there. But fire stations weren't very far apart in those days. You know, the town was small and they were, you know, pretty close together by today's standards. Well, yeah. I mean, everything was probably concentrated in downtown Portland, right? Yeah. 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 But they also have an 1878 steamer. They have an 18 or 1911 steamer. Uh, they have a 1918 motorized fire engine and a 1949 motorized fire engine. Huh. So these are just just the vehicles. Um, so the the uh, the 1859 hand pumper, I think, was the sixth piece of fire equipment purchased. the uh, The ladder truck was interesting because it's been around for a long time. It's been used in the Starlight Parade to carry the ladder, and then the firefighters stop. They stand the ladder up. Somebody climbs up it, and they jump into a life net. Hmm. Um, but it wasn't really cared for very well, and nobody knew anything about it. So uh, Fire Station 14 out in Northeast Portland, they decided they wanted to restore it, and they got the okay to do that. And they called me up and said, what what make is this, and how old is it? And I said, well, I've never found that. So when you, I've, I've found, I'd found the history, you know, Vigilance Hook and Ladder was the, the ladder company that would have had this ladder truck. There was only one all the way up 
into the 1880s, almost 1890s. One in, in one existence truck, period? Well, one truck company. Oh, okay. So the others were engine companies. So even in the hand pump days, a, a hand pumper was a water pump, and that's an engine company. And then a truck company would carry ladders and, and entry, forcible entry equipment and things. So all during from 1853 to probably about 1892, I think there was only one truck company during all that time. And in the volunteer days, that was vigilance hook and ladder. So they had they had, had the first horse-drawn vehicle, but that was in 18, um, I think 1882, right before. They actually bought their own horses and used them until the city started doing that. And so um, no, there was really no record of what they had before that. And so I got to digging deeper and deeper, and I finally found a reference in, in like 1871. It said – the piece of equipment that they used was a ladder truck built, and this is, you know, quote unquote, a ladder truck built in this city in 1866. And uh, and from that point on, it refers to that all the way up until they get a they get this horse-drawn one. So it was an interesting reference. It was probably purchased as a kit and assembled here in town because mm -hmm. there were major fire engine manufacturers back in the day, American LaFrance and Seagrave and, you know, some others uh, that would build fire engines, but nothing about this fire truck. So... Um, I get to – so now I've got it going back to 1866, but I'm thinking from 1853, they were the first operating company in the city. What did they use? Maybe they just carried ladders. They just get them on their shoulders because they always had the most staffing, the most manpower uh, of any of the, the volunteer companies. Um, or maybe they just had some crappy old wagon they'd throw stuff on. So the other day I came across a newspaper article from 1895 that was a – retrospective of the fire department going back to 1853. And I'm reading through this, and it actually says that they had a common wagon, vigilance hook and ladder used a common wagon as the term they used, beginning in 1853 that, that they probably used until 1866. And they probably had it fixed up to be more suitable for ladders. Um, but that connected those dots. And I just didn't discover that until just, you know, I started doing all this stuff in 2004. And it wasn't until a week ago or two weeks ago that I finally find this reference about a common wagon that served for the first 13 years. Well, the, the crazy thing to me is that regardless of what documentation there is and what newspaper articles, we'll never understand what it was really like. It's, it's a foreign world to, to be walking down the street and it's dirt and the, the language is different. The slang is different. Yeah. The clothes – like – we cannot imagine it. And yeah. so it's cool that you can discover these documents and start to piece stuff together. But I would love to just actually see what it would be like to be around in that time period. Well, one of the articles on my website is an actual account from a from a guy that was a volunteer going back to the 1860s, I think, telling what it was like. Huh. You know, it's really interesting. And you're right. The terms, the, the language is, is really quite different. Uh, yeah, the clothing. You know, firefighters wore – I've got to actually have a uniform – that uh, dates back, you know, this particular style back to about 1930. And it is wool, 100% wool, and it is heavy. The dress uniforms use, we use now are polyester. I was going to say, is wool fire retardant? It is. Okay. It is. But this was a dress uniform, but still things were pretty practical. Yeah, their clothing was 100% wool. So organic materials, wools and cottons don't burn well. And if you get them heavy enough, you know, they'll protect you. Uh, but firefighters wore canvas coats. You know, it's evolved into different high-tech materials today that uh, that have 
fire resistant qualities. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're also multi layered to do multiple multiple things. But the interesting thing about firefighting is it hasn't changed a lot over time. It's, I was going to ask you that if if they did things differently back then. Yeah. The you know you when you have better protective equipment, especially breathing equipment, where you can you have a mask on and your own supply of air, you can enter into a building a toxic environment. But back in those days, there were not plastics, there were not synthetic materials. So the smoke wasn't as toxic. Yeah. It was just all wood and and wool and cotton and all organic materials. So the whole dynamic of the way things burned and, and the kind of heat they would create and the speed with which flame would propagate, all of that was a very different thing back in those days. And then, you know, the hose was ungodly heavy. Uh, the connections where you screw two pieces together were all brass and, I mean, they weigh a ton. Today, they're a, a pyrolite material, a lightweight, you know, strong uh, material. The hose jackets were stiff and hard and heavy. You know, a, a bundle of hose of the same length of today probably weighs, back in the day, probably weighed five times more. <laughs> you know, so it was, there were things like that, but it's it's still a piece of hose. It still operates the same. Um, you just You just had a lot more work getting it in place making it bend, you know, doing things with it. So, Well, and what about pay? I mean, I imagine the volunteers weren't getting paid, but when they started paying them, was it a decent wage? No. No? <laughs> so no. What, was, what was their incentive to do it? You know, that's, that's a hard one to say. I guess some – well, so here's, here's kind of how it works. So on the volunteer days, um, people just, you know, responded. They'd use bells to call into service. Each, each station would have a different tone of a bell – and that bell would, if, it, if wrong, would call that, you know, that uh, company, the people in the community to service. From like a central church bell? No, no. Each fire station would have a, would have a bell. But how would they let the fire station know? Uh, well, as early as the 1870s, there was a telegraph system. Uh, you know, the mid to late 1870s, the telegraph came in. But otherwise, it was just people yelling fire. <laughs> and somebody would run to the fire station and ring the bell and call oh the volunteers God. to come get the equipment. And so they'd come running, they'd get the equipment, and they'd go charging off to where the fire was. And, you know, in those days, it, was, it wasn't a medical service, so, you know, they would literally follow the column of smoke. And so it was just volunteers doing things. And, you know, they tried – fire stations in Portland were nice places. They tried to make them nice because they wanted men to gather, smoke cigars, play cards. And so if something did happen, there was a workforce ready there to go. Mm. Uh, some firefighters actually lived there. So the first the – first, uh, firefighter fatality in the line of duty, a guy named James Reed, uh, who died in 1881, was a Portland firefighter. And his address was the fire station that he worked in. That was his home address. Hmm. So he apparently lived there. So fast forward to the, uh, the, uh, the paid days in 1883, the Portland Paid Fire Department. They had three paid firefighters. They had a budget to pay three firefighters and the rest were volunteers, probably doing so to vie for jobs when they came up you know, in the paid position. Now, the work schedule from 1883 to, um, uh, to 1919 was seven days a week. <laughs> and up until 1908, I think it was, they had 12 hours a week off to go home or to go do things. <laughs> 12 hours a week? 12 hours a week. That's like, yeah, it's like a few hours a night, right? Yeah. 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 So you might go home for dinner. You know, that kind of thing. And so the journal books, the log books that track the activity in the station, you'd see so-and-so left for an hour to go home or to go, you know, this, that, the other thing. 
So big, big things in 1908, uh, or maybe it was 1912, big, big time. They added 12 extra hours of time off. So now they had 24 hours a week off. So that had to be a pretty big thing. But well, yeah, I mean, I don't think they enacted the 40-hour work week until... Oh, yeah. Well, and firefighting has always kind of fallen between the cracks, even in modern day. Yeah. So you fast forward to 1918, and a vote went out to the people to create a second platoon or a second work group. So now you're going to have two, two equal groups of people to staff the stations, one working one day, one working the next day, one work, the first one coming back the third day, That's you know the other one coming back the fourth day. So now the work schedule, beginning November 1st, 1919, uh, is when it went into effect. They had to hire a lot of people, 75 or 80 people were hired to make this happen. Um, they had one day on, one day off, one day on, one day off. And so uh, that carried on until another vote happened in 1947, and it went into effect in 1948 to add a third platoon. So now you have one one shift, A shift works this day, B shift works the next, C shift works the next day. And on the fourth day, back comes A shift, B shift, C shift. So mm -hmm. one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off. And it remains that really till today. And right now, the city of Portland is experimenting with a different work schedule uh, that uh, I'm not even sure how it, how it works exactly. I think they have some stations using it and they're, they're doing some uh, – uh, some studies to see if it reduces stress or does other things. Mm -hmm. Because the thing, you know, kind of to circle back on what happens in a day, um, being up all night, that's stressful. It's, yeah. you know, one of the one of the leading killers of firefighters over, over the years is heart disease. And it's been kind of traced back to the stress of the job, the lack of sleep, the, you know, when you're, when you're in a dead sleep and at two in the morning, the bell rings and you've got to be up and in less than 60 seconds, you've got to be dressed and on a vehicle, a 30,000 pound vehicle driving down the road. That's a, that's a tough deal. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times, and unfortunately it wasn't when I was driving, but I'm, I'm kind of, you know, we're blocks away and I'm kind of rubbing my eyes going, crap, where are we? What are we doing? Okay. You know, you get your head around you. Okay. Now I, I, I get it. I heard something. Um, you know, that kind of stuff happens. It's, it's. It's just a, a crazy thing. Uh, people have, you know, grabbed a pole to slide down and not grab tight enough and hit the floor and, and broken legs. Yeah. Uh, because they just weren't awake enough. Um, I remember one time waking up down, I was working in the central fire station downtown, and there's an engine, a truck, a squad, and a rescue. And I didn't work there all the time. I was what was called a traveler. I would fill in when people were on vacation or sick leave. And uh, so I, I could be on the engine truck rescue, you know, and you kind of want to wake up and know what, what you're on. And I, I remember waking up and I was real groggy and I'm sitting there and, and I finally kind of came to and I, I thought, wait a minute, there's a person on the truck, there's a person on the squad, there's the rescues. Oh, it's the engine. I'm on the engine. You know, <laughs> and I remember getting up and I took the pole and I came down, I hit the floor, I took a step towards the engine, it went out the door without me. It's like, oh crap, you know, and I'm, I'm like two years in, I thought, oh, I'm going to yeah. be in trouble for this. And uh, so I sat around. Luckily, it was kind of a nothing thing. And uh, they come back and I, I go into the, they get back and I, I go in the officers in the watch room and I said, oh, okay, I said, Rich, I am really sorry. I said, I just, I, I woke up groggy and I missed the rig and I, I, I just, you know, I don't know what to say. And he looks at me and he goes, you mean you weren't on the rig? <laughs> God, I could have just gone back to bed. <laughs> of course, I could have fallen off a block away and, uh, and you know, they wouldn't have, would have known. Yeah, what well, would yeah, What's the time limit? They give you, how do they know when, how does anyone know when it's actually going to drive out of? 
well, the it's station. Up, it's up to the driver. They've got to look around and see that everybody's out. The door's got to go up. You know, everybody's on. Okay, so it's just up to him. Yeah. 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 But again, funny things happen at two in the morning when everybody's oh, yeah. a little groggy. So yeah, sometimes no, brutal. Yeah. So did you discover, I mean, I guess it, if it were that famous, I would already know about it. Did you discover any major uh, fires in Portland that, I mean, you, you hear about like the great fire of Chicago in yeah. 1893 and, and the one in London that burned half the city. Like right. for the longest time, the lack of a functioning fire department would guarantee that an entire city could burn down. But as far as I know, it didn't happen here, right? Oh, yeah. Did yeah, it? Yeah. And a functioning fire department isn't really a factor. Chicago had a fine fire department in 1871. Is that when it was? 71? Yeah, October 9th when Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked the lantern over yeah, and, you know, yeah. all of that stuff. Uh, but it, it was just the nature of, of the town at the time. So, yeah, Portland had theirs. In December of uh, of 1872, they had a pretty sub substantial fire. But, uh, you know, being in the middle of winter, it didn't propagate too far, but it did some damage. Fast forward to August 2nd of 1873, uh, in a day known as Black Saturday, 22 blocks of the city burned to the ground. Wow. So basically from Burnside up to, you know, 20, well, about 10 or 12 blocks south uh, and from the river up to 2nd Avenue was completely destroyed. Hmm. So the, it was a hot summer day and, and the winds coming out of the east, you know, all the, just kind of like weather like we're having right now, yeah. uh, you know, here in... Labor Day of 2022, hot, dry wind, all the right conditions, a red flag day that we would call today. Yeah, I was explaining it to my kids. The, the, the buildings were built so differently. They were so basic and rudimentary, and we didn't understand how to create fire retardant products. Yeah. Uh, so you just, everything's just built out of wood. Well, you got to go back to the origins of the city. So back in the 1840s, Portland was a clearing on the side of the river. And people started building things. And where did they get the material to build? They cut down trees. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of trees. Mills popped up on the on the waterfront so you could get these get these trees. You could mill them down and you could make lumber that you could build things out of. And that's what the whole city was built on. Sidewalks were made of wood. Buildings were actually uh, elevated onto piers and things along the river because unlike today with a seawall to hold the river in one place, the river banks were sloped. It was a lot of silt, soft silt that washes out of all the farmland up, you know, upriver. And uh, and it would flood, you know, flood up several blocks uh, because the river could go wide instead of get deeper. You know, why the sea balls now. Why did they build that close to the water if they knew it was going to flood? Because of logging, mills, you know, things. They needed the water for transport okay. uh, to get things, to export things to different places. You know, going across country... Going back to Lone First Cemetery, just to go out 20 blocks, which is one mile east of, of the river, was an all-day chore because it was so uh, heavily uh, covered with old-growth timber that that was never considered a, a city cemetery for many, many years because it was considered too far away. One mile. <laughs> but the terrain was so rugged uh, going through the forest. So Portland was, you know, was built this way. And again, everything was built on piers. So when it would flood, buildings weren't swamped. Um, but all of this left completely wooden buildings, you know, not built to any kind of code. The ability for air to go underneath, docks and wharfs, um, you know, those were a real problem. And that's why fireboats were eventually, in 1904, the first fireboat was christened because the waterfront fires were, could be so bad. 
even then. So it was just the nature of Portland. So when after 1873, they began to rethink codes, they widened streets, and that's when a lot of the buildings uh, that still survive today began to be built, and they were built out of stone and, and brick and mm -hmm. other materials that were not combustible. But they still made the city blocks pretty small compared to other cities. I don't think they're that much different. I think they're- Are they not? I've always heard that, that they're, I don't know what the distance is, but they're like significantly shorter. They're, you should be able to fit like three city blocks of Portland in a regular Chicago city block or something. Well, yeah, I don't know. And and there could have been different thinking, you know, in Chicago, for example, after their big fire, it was the same yeah. thing. You know, fire just propagated through the city and they might have been a little bit more aggressive about, uh, you know, widening things out. But, uh -huh. but you know, it, it, in many places, a, a pretty typical standard is 20 blocks to a mile. Uh -huh. And they're smaller down in the core area. They're a little more average size and intermediate and sometimes they can be a little bigger out east. But that was a general rule, you know, as a firefighter, if, if you know, if I knew we were going from downtown out to 20th, you know, that's about a mile. And, you know, we're going to be doing 30 miles an hour. It'll give us, you know, X amount of time to get there and, you know, kind of think, okay, how long do we have to kind of get our head together here mm -hmm. as we're heading to, you know, something 20 blocks or 40 blocks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know that you directly answered and I just remember, so we got to go back to it. What, <laughs> okay. what was the first wage? What was the first? Oh, yeah. I don't know exactly. It wasn't much. That's um, not documented? It is, but I, it's hard to say what, you know, what was first. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of records of, uh, you know, personnel records have pay in there starting here, there and other places, you know, 80 bucks a month, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I don't know if that was starting wage after, you know, journeyman pay or, you know, whatever it was. 80 bucks and 83. That's a lot of money. Um, e, well, a month. Oh, a month. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what would that be, uh, times 12, um, 700 bucks a year, less than a thousand bucks a year. 80 bucks in 1883. Would be twenty three hundred dollars. So twenty three hundred dollars a month. I guess that's not that much. No, we'll see. It was, it was not. Firefighting was never really a great paying job, even up until probably the seventies, uh, the ni the nineteen seventies. There's a great pension now, though, isn't there? Isn't well, that why people? Yeah, and in, in, in part of that, uh, adding a third platoon in nineteen forty eight was also a, a more proper pension. Uh, for firefighters. And that's a whole interesting thing itself that time has to put into perspective. But uh, up until, you know, the 1970s or so, many firefighters used their two days off to work other jobs. Hmm. And a lot of them worked in the trades. In fact, you get a whole station full of people. You got one person doing concrete, one was a framer, one was an electrician, you know, and they'd all work together on their days off, but they had to, to make a decent living because hmm. it just didn't pay that well. When I came in in 1984 into Portland, uh, the pay was pretty good. You know, certainly I didn't feel like I had to work a second job in order to make ends meet. Uh, and then it's, you know, it's gotten better and, and the hazards have grown. You know, there are more hidden hazards, cancers, uh, heart disease and other things have become more prominent uh, things that take firefighters lives that they have to be aware of. Uh, there's, but it's just, it's just, there's a lot of difficulty in the job and they're doing more today with less people uh, and, and the job is spread out more. Where before, you know, back in, let's say the 60s or 70s, you might do seven or eight 
runs a day today might be 15 runs a day in a 24 hour hmm. shift. Hmm. You know, and some of that depends on the station. And you're saying cancers based on inhaling materials that that catch up with you later that you don't know about right now. Inhaling, absorbing through the skin. Uh -huh. One of the one of the uh, paths of of uh, contamination that's been deemed pretty significant is the back of the neck. And so, for a lot of years, it really wasn't considered necessary or or you know appropriate to wash your firefighting gear, but you know, the, the different chemicals and things would soak into the collar, huh. for example, and rub up against your sweaty neck and it'd be absorbed. Um, you know, you could be, you could breathe it, you could absorb it through the skin, uh, different things like that, that were pads of, of contamination for firefighters. Hmm. So it, it's just, there's just so little known, you know, it's one of those things that more will be known. But now there are, are I think there's about eight different presumptive cancers that if you get them and you were a firefighter, it's it's a very short leap to say that those were caused by the job because they've become so common. Um, I think, uh, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what they are. Um, I won't say because I'll probably get it wrong, but there's a list that just came out not too long ago. And are they related to items that are supposed to be fire retardant? Well, it's interesting. There's the International Association of Firefighters has recently, I think they commissioned a study that showed that the firefighter protective clothing is actually treated with chemicals that could be carcinogens. <laughs> so it's like, how do you how do you win? You need that stuff yeah. to protect yourself, and it has to be built a certain way to do the job. Or we go back to canvas, you know, or whatever. And yeah, and uh, um, but it may be the thing that's you know that's contaminating firefighters and and giving them these life threatening or or uh, terminal illnesses. Hmm. So it's 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 tough, you know. It's you have to have things that protect you, but at the same time, those things that protect you have to be safe. But if you can't make something safe, is it better to have something unsafe and play the odds or not do it at all? You mm -hmm. know, it's, uh, it's really difficult. Well, one last thing uh, before we wrap it up. Um, what is your opinion or do you have an opinion on privatizing the fire department? Um. You know, it's it's interesting because I uh, when I went to work in Salem, it was a city fire department, but the ambulance service was private. Uh, well, I guess it is up here too. Uh, the thing was, right just right before I was hired in 1983, the ambulance company blew town. <laughs> I mean, literally in the middle of the night, they left. That's not they, good. They went out of business and left, and the fire department was stuck taking it over. And, you know, they did. And I think the system worked quite well, personally, uh, because the communication between ambulances and, and the fire department, the, the swapping of equipment was very efficient. You know, if we put equipment on our from our fire engine onto a patient and put, loaded them in the ambulance, we would just take the similar equipment off the ambulance, put it on our rig, and everybody was square. We were 100% ready to for the next call, and they, they would just get the get the stuff at the hospital, they'd take it off the patient and put it back on their ambulance. We could talk to them directly on the radio. For many years here in Portland, that wasn't the case. And, you know, the new, uh, well, new back in, I think, 93 or so, the, the consolidated dispatching brought medical and, and fire and everybody into one roof at the Bureau of Electronic Communications. So for a long time, that wasn't the case. But there's still kind of a, you know, there's still kind of a division uh, of things and the Fire Bureau, Portland Fire, has always maintained a, a readiness in the event something happens to a private company that they, they would have to be poised to be able to take over. 
and some of that means equipment and some of it means trained. And, you know, they have a, a large body of paramedics, uh, you know, that can step up and do the job. But it's, you know, it's, um, I guess there's always that, that threat that that could happen mm -hmm. when it's not in, in the government's control and not that the government's control is the best or the only answer to anything. Mm -hmm. So it, it can be done. It's just, I think it's about how it's set up to do more than it is what's one or the other. Yeah, I mean, it has the ability to get super political and that's not the reason I'm asking you. Uh, it just seems that, it seems that there are some items worth paying taxes for. And the argument for not privatizing the fire department or the police department is that then you, you can't get the fire department to come to your house and put out the fire without paying up front or something, you know? Right, right. And uh, that seems ridiculous. And it could totally happen yeah. if Amazon took over the fire department, you know, and you're like, you call in and you say, hey, my house is on fire. They're like, well, uh, we're going to need $120 before we'll even dispatch anybody in. And well, that, that's the beauty of, of the fire service. And, and to me, that was, it was never anything I had to consider as a firefighter. You know, if we were sent, we would go and we would do the job. It didn't matter who it was. It didn't matter their status. It doesn't matter if they're if they're homeless or live in the most expensive place in Laurelhurst or wherever. Mm -hmm. None of that matters. None of that is a consideration. There's a job to do. We're trained to do it, and you go do it. Yeah. And I don't know that privatization would 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 dilute that or not. I mean, it's hard to say. Um, I I don't know. It's uh, but I think. I think there are some things that uh, that work better when they are developed for the public good. Yeah, and and you know just even going so even Portland, just speaking historically, many fire departments started based on the insurance industry, and you see this a lot on the East Coast. Portland wasn't this way, and I think I think they were wise to do this. So, um, what would happen is an insurance company would insure several buildings. And they would say, we want to protect our interests, so we're going to create a volunteer fire company. Hmm. One volunteer fire company close to our buildings, and we're going to buy them equipment. And their job is to put that – take care of our buildings. And we're going to put a mark, a fire mark, if you've ever heard of those. A fire mark is a, a metal plate that would go on a building that would identify who was insuring it. Hmm. And these volunteer companies, if they went to a fire that didn't have their company's mark on it, they wouldn't put out the fire. Unless maybe the, the the building owner wanted to, uh, you know, incentivize things for them, you know, a little bit of cashy-cashy under the table or mm -hmm. somehow promise that they were going to go with this insurance company, then maybe they would. Or these these buildings that weren't identified, the two competing fire companies might get in a big fight over who was going to put it out to try to get that business. And they'd end up with a brawl in the street and the building burning down rather than, yeah. than uh, doing the job that you know, for the public good. And, and if one building was burning down, others were too. And so Portland never did it that way. You could not be an operating fire company in Portland unless you applied with the fire commission of the city that was established before there was even a fire department. And you had to get their blessing and okay. And at that point, they would, they would buy equipment and even station houses hmm. in the volunteer days uh, to support these people that wanted to volunteer to be firefighters. So a very, very different model in Portland, and I think it uh, it kept a lot of that competitive, problematic kind of stuff from ever being an issue. 
you know, people talk about that, but there's really no evidence that there were ever street brawls that broke out, you know, <laughs> fighting about who was going to put out the fire or not put out the fire in Portland. I'm sure it happened. I could see that. Oh, it could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty wild frontier back in the day. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much. That was awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, it's always uh, interesting to share. We, you know, I don't think we got nearly as deep into the history, but you know, it all. It, there's a connection to it all. You know, everything that is today was of something from the past. That's yes. the cool thing about the fire service. It's uh, there's nothing really new coming out of it. It's all an extension of what's been. Exactly. And we'll we'll put your uh, your website in the comments or in the uh, the bio as well sure. as um, the location of the the museum. Yeah. 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 And my contact information is on my website. So if anybody ever wanted more, uh, one thing I get a lot is I'll get contact from people that, uh, um, that had a relative, a grandfather, great grandfather, somebody that was a firefighter in Portland. And it's really fun to dig out a personnel file or try to find their history. Sometimes I even find pictures of who they were. Hmm. If nothing else, I might be able to find the different stations they worked in and provide somebody with pictures that say, you know, here's the place. It still exists today, but it's a you know, it's a stamp, you know, a stamp company or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, really connect people to their own personal history, which is pretty neat. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you. All right, Cody. Thank you.